Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Howdy, folks. We are in the home stretch for 2017. If you're like me, you're beginning to think about goals for next year, both for you personally and for your work. I'm super excited about 2018. I hope you are as well. One of the best parts of doing the podcast is that I get to meet a lot of super smart people who are also really nice. Maybe there's someone you've heard on the show that you'd like to connect with. There's usually some info in the show notes about how to do that. But if I can help by making an introduction, I am happy to do that. You can use the contact form on my webpage or email me, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. I'm here to help. Now, let's jump into this conversation with Mike Camerata about market share, why it's important, and how to get it. Welcome back, everybody. This is our second episode on life science sales with Mike Camerata. So if you didn't hear the previous one, you should go back and listen to that. We talked about the customer's buying process and how selling should mesh with that and how it's different from the salesperson's selling process. Today, we're going to talk about uh, market share and why it's so important and how to get it if you don't have it. But to let you know, Mike has been a director of sales at Pharmacy of Biotech. He had his own consulting company for 10 years. He's been a sales manager at Perkin Elmer, a global sales manager at Teledyne Isco. Uh, And now he's retired, but still willing to do a little consulting and sales training. Mike Camerata, welcome back to Life Science Marketing Radio again. Glad to be back. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know. I really enjoyed the last conversation. So, And I think this one's going to be really, um, this one's fascinating to me. This is the whole idea of market share. And I understand it, but I don't think people, as you say, when we first spoke, appreciate this fact enough. So um, how do you define it and why, you know, we're going to talk about how you define it, why you want it, how to get it. You told me it's the most important thing for a company. I've always thought of it as a metric, but in this context, I think you mean it as a strategy. So tell me what it is. Okay. I think it, it, it is in many ways a metric. It is a measurable fact that you can establish and use as a, uh, a starting point as to whether or not you're growing your business. But there's so many ways to measure it. And over the years of the companies I've been with, they always seem to choose the method of measurement that makes them look better than any other method of measurement. So you can measure it in terms of units or you can measure it in terms of dollars. And you can measure in terms of long-term uh, units in the field or last year's units in the field or what you think this year's units in the field are going to be. And the same is true whether it's instrumentation or consumables. Uh, but I think the term, the, the market share, from the point of view of providing useful information, is to, de- to define it in terms of legacy units. How many units have you placed in the field since you've been making that technology as a company? Uh, now, some companies have been in there out there for many years. The, 
uh, Hewlett Packard's uh, the pharmacy is now GE Healthcare, the Waters, the Agilence. They've they've been out there for long amounts of time, and they've produced a lot of pieces of equipment, and that gives them a tremendous number of legacy units in the field. So uh, for some older, you know, they'll be measuring for 20 years or more of established units. For newer companies, of course, that's they don't have that number, that legacy, so they might be measuring uh, one to five years or startup companies actually have no legacy units at all. Uh, for consumables, I think it should be dollars. Uh, but the problem with market share in consumables is often the apples and oranges thing where a, a company that has a large uh, consumable portfolio, a company, for instance, like New, New England Biolabs, uh, it's got a tremendously broad portfolio. And from a dollar's point of view, they're going to have a pretty pretty good market share. But other, another company that might have a more focused view of the consumable market may have a, a much fewer number units, but still have a pretty good piece of the change for that particular segment that they're focused on. So it's a little bit harder in the, in the uh, consumable areas. But um, it doesn't mean they don't make a significant impact on the market segment if they have a smaller number. Right. So why is market share so important and why in those terms that you just defined? Okay. Customers in our business have been pretty well surveyed. Uh, there's survey companies and uh, uh, they have pretty much determined that the three main factors in a customer's buying decision are the following. First, is their history with the technology, their personal history with the technology. Have they used the product before and was it what they expected or was it something less than what they expected? And if they don't have a personal history, they'll search out a trusted colleague to ask them the questions that, uh, you know, what, what products should I buy? And throughout the industry, there's long been known as a, a collection of gurus who are experts in particular technologies. Then, if they can't find a good, trusted colleague, uh, they'll go to the peer-reviewed literature. And I say peer-reviewed uh, as opposed to some of the more uh, uh, newsy kind of uh, journals that are out there that also have advertising. And um, so their experience uh, in surveys kind of matches up with what you found with the ACPS, ACPLS meetings that have uh, had customer panels. And I think that's, it's interesting. There's, I've asked customers the same question and they give me the same answers. And I've asked salespeople in sales training programs if they, as when they were customers, didn't act in the same way. And they all agreed that that's what they do. So here's now why those legacy numbers are important. Let's say those longer lasting companies, you may have a thousand legacy units in the field. and. Uh, a, co a company that's only been in the industry for uh, or selling this technology for a couple of years might have 50 units in the field or 100 units in the field. And a startup company has no units in the field. So if you look at when a customer is trying to buy, if they're looking at their history, if a company's got a 50% market share, then 50% of the customers that are trying to decide on using a product have experience with that product and will use it again. If they ask a colleague, 50% of the colleagues will have experience with that one vendor. And if they go to the peer-reviewed literature, 50% of the articles are probably written about that one vendor. 
So if you're a company with a 50% market share, you've got a 50-50 chance of getting involved in every sales process that takes part and every buying process, as we're going to relate this to going back to the buying process. Every, you have a 50% chance. Now, if you're a vendor that's blessed with something like an 85% to 90% market share, and there are those out there in the field, then you pretty much have a lock on this business. And if you're in a 5% market share, you have a really difficult road to getting even asked to participate in, in a, a piece of business that's out there. Uh, you can see the problem if you're the 5% person. It doesn't mean you can't get a piece of business. It doesn't mean your salesperson can't make a strong bond and relationship with a potential customer. And it doesn't mean that the, there are own customers out there that like to take the path less traveled and buy from a, a smaller vendor. Uh, but 85% of them are probably not going to. But if you're, if, if, it, if you're in the 5% market share range, even if you're up against a 50% market share competitor, you probably want to look at stealing business from other 5%ers or 10%ers more than trying to go up against a 50% share because their legacy is going to give them a significant advantage over you in the sale. Yeah. So um, just as a, a side note, is there a way to optimize? So as you say, there are there's always a few people who are willing to go as early adopters or want to buy from a smaller company for any number of reasons. Is there a way to identify those and optimize your chances with those particular customers? Well, if, if there are early adopters, they, again, the, the larger market share companies are going to know them already. They're going to have had experience with them. They're going to talk to them about uh, their products on a regular basis. They're going to interact with them frequently. Where a smaller market share company may, is just coming in probably for the first time into that environment. But if they have, as an, have an opportunity to make a presentation to a group, the group will usually have someone that stands out as the technical know-it-all within that group. And that, that is a person that would need to be cultivated. It's important to get involved with a person like that and possibly even try to schedule a private meeting so that they, you can get information from that person as to what's, what's are the, uh, some of the key factors for success for that laboratory with respect to the technical aspects of the product. Yeah. So that, that sort of leads right into my next question is, and I'm always fascinated at those customer panels that everyone, you know, is, and of course, small sample size, we've never had an early adopter on our panel, apparently, because they always ask somebody else. And I'm always thinking somebody had to be the first person to buy this thing. How did that happen? So, um, how do you well, find this? Let's, 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 let's talk about that for a second. The the idea of the early adopter is really for a very new technology that no one's making. Right. Okay? Where you you won't see them if you're talking about who's buying chromatography from GE or who's buying LCs from this company or mass specs. You're not going to see that because the early adopters have already come and gone in that kind of a business. Right. So what you're talking to is the rank and file customers that are looking to the experts to help them determine what to buy. Okay, so but are you saying that there are there are small market share companies that are not new technologies? 
Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the new, you know, come in. They they might come in with a new wrinkle on a product. Uh, a large portion of my career was with pharmacy and biotech. Again, it's now GE Healthcare. Uh, a lot of companies tried to compete with pharmacy with regard to its chromatography business. And interestingly enough, we saw companies come and go and mostly go. After a while, they, they gave up. The pharmacy probably had at that point in time upwards of 85% market share for chromatography for proteins. And all the literature, you know, a large portion of the peer-reviewed journals was all our product. It was, it was great for us and tough for anybody else. It's just the, the way it would be. Then, and interestingly enough, Pharmacia came out with a product that was a, a DNA synthesizer. And they had no legacy units at all. And they tried to use the reputation of the chromatography marketplace to build itself into the uh, molecular biology arena. And it failed miserably. Interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, all right. So how do you find though, um, you know, those, if you are a small share company, how, how do you develop your product or how do you, how do you break in where other companies are, are dominant? It's, it's, it's really tough, but I think what a company needs to do if they really want to uh, go up against one of the big boys is that they, they really need to do a lot of homework in advance. And I don't mean just they have an idea for a product and they develop it into a product because I've seen a lot of those come and go. But if, what you really want to do is spend a lot of time interacting with customers, potential customers who are using the techniques that, are, that you're going to be competing against and find out. If, if they would help them and develop in their product development stage a product that meets the needs that the existing big boys don't meet. And if you can do that, that's, that's at least one thing to do. It's uh, have them get involved, help you get involved. If you can re read the journals and find out who are the key publishers in an area that you're involved in, try to meet with those people and ask for their help. Uh, try to put them on your scientific advisory board so that when you uh, introduce the product to the marketplace, you have some names behind it that people will recognize. I really like that um, because, you know, as opposed to come, developing your product and then hoping that some thought leaders will try it and say nice things about it, you really, you know, there's no high-powered scientist that doesn't like to be flattered and asked, hey, you know, we really want an, your input on developing this product. And then now uh, the whole um, consistency principle of persuasion, they're going to want to, as the product's developed, of course they're going to continue to help you with it because they've already said, you know, it's it's they have ownership of it in a sense. Right, and they're, they're going to... Uh Try out the unit, give you input, and the worst thing that I've seen customers uh, companies do is after they've gotten some help from a, a well-known person, they don't implement the suggestions that the person has made 
because they've already gone too far along in the product development stage to turn around and make the changes that, that have been suggested. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so uh, I hear this on, you know, just marketing discussions frequently about um, more customer input early on and, and really finding out what people want before you take off building something and finding out you're missing some component. Um, all right, so... I've the other thing you're going to get involved with is product evaluators. Once you actually have a product that's almost at the production stage, you should be having customers do beta testing or evaluations and make a deal with those people that they'll, uh, in order to give it the effort that they need, that there would be some compensation for them, whether it's in terms of uh, getting a discount on the product once it's a, a production product. Uh, I know people have tried to pawn off their uh, uh, beta units on customers as the payment for the work that they've done. But I think the customer is entitled to a production unit at a, at, at a discount. And sometimes that discount could be as much as 100%. Or they might actually have some financial honorarium for the customer. And again, you need to check with the institutions and make sure you're not breaking any rules when you do this. But it is, it is important to get people on your side, uh, whether it's in the pre-planning stage or in the pre-production stage, to get feedback. Um, and that agreement you make with the customer, that should be done in advance and in writing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, makes, makes great sense. And certainly, yeah, definitely pay attention to those rules. But also, you know, I could see that's certainly fair because even though you're providing them with an instrument there there is effort on their part to try it i mean because it's not a guarantee it's not like you're giving them something that you know will work perfectly for them they could put a lot of work in and get nothing out of it so you know making sure that you can compensate them otherwise seems a completely reasonable thing to do now you can look at uh the larger companies and what they do when they launch a product is they're pretty good at getting customers to pre-evaluate it. And when they launch a product, there's, there's no end of what, what's going to happen in terms of trade show launches, uh, press releases, uh, launch parties, uh, seminars, workshops, all kinds of electronic blitzing and media going on. Large companies can do that. Smaller companies really try to do it, can't do it as much. And uh, I think the small company is at a disadvantage because they invest most of their money in product development in the development of the product and not in the, in the potential to market that product once it's, once it's ready to go. So I think start, startup companies have some real uh, problems in this area because they always believe they have the better product, a, a better product than the market leader, and that's why they're going to win and steal all the money. I don't know how many times I've heard even clients of mine say that that's what they're going to do. They spent all their money in development, and then they have a funding partner often that wants to start seeing a return on investment. So instead of spending all the proper time in getting customer input before they go to market, they want that product to go to market and start making money for them. And ultimately, the smaller companies generally have too few feet on the ground, whether it's in sales or in marketing or any people at all really have the kind of impact that that would really show how well they can sell against an established giant 
But there is some good news for smaller companies. I've talked to a lot of sales reps, both in those big companies and competing against those big companies. And they say that those big companies are really hurting themselves with cost-cutting initiatives. And those initiatives are cutting down on their sales force, ramping up their teleselling, everybody's favorite thing to receive a tele telemarketing call. They're cutting back on their training. They're cutting back on their service staff. They're cutting back on their tech support capabilities. Uh, so they are doing things that make customers less satisfied with them. And maybe this is the niche that the smaller company can start looking for uh, to see what they can do to, to fill the gap that the large companies have left. Yeah, definitely. I That makes complete sense. And it's certainly an opportunity. And uh, both of the things you just mentioned, you know, the, the opportunity for the smaller companies to do things that the bigger companies are choosing not to do. Um, and in a sense, maybe they live in a completely different, two different worlds. There are different stages, certainly. And then that whole thing about, you know, they thought they had the best product, better than the market leader, may or may not be true, um, but spent all their money in development to prove that. And then without putting enough marketing effort behind it or, or investigation into what the market really wanted that was different and, you know, the feet on the ground to make it happen. So uh, I think it's another well, great know, A good example of a, of a product that was probably a real good product that never really made it was the DeLorean. Yeah. And the DeLorean was it was kind of a really neat car. It was it was people liked it and it had a couple of uh, real committed fans of the car. But you know, I I used to explain the difference between owning a DeLorean and owning a Mercedes is if you if you were on the side of the road with a the hood up on your Mercedes and the steam coming out of the engine, a person passing you would say, "Poor guy, you know, he bought the right car, but you know, didn't it didn't work out for him. But if you were in the same situation with a DeLorean, your peers would look at you and say, that idiot, he should have never bought that car. Right. And that's why yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people don't buy new products because they're afraid of being the idiot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this could be a whole other conversation. I mean, the DeLorean is famous now for being in a movie. Yeah. And, um, and I'm just thinking now, you know, you you rarely ever saw them when they came out. You know, it was kind of a novelty. And yet right. Tesla somehow managed to do something different because I'm stunned given the new technology, how they're everywhere where I live. And I'm just going, wow, you know. Well, I guess it matters where you live because I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, well, I live pretty <laughs> close to the factory. It's not that far away, but. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've seen too many of them, but I yeah. have seen. Electric, electric charging stations everywhere. Yeah, well. Somebody's planning on there being a lot of them. But uh, there's a, at the supermarket I go to, there's a, uh, about 20 charging stations in the parking lot. And wow. I have never seen a car charging. Ah, interesting. So, you know, some people are a little harder to convince. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Um, and it helps to have more, you know, market share as you say people around here look around and they go i'm you know i know a few people who own teslas i'll get one i'm sure in yeah. nebraska they look around they saw one they go i don't know that guy i'm not going to get one right that's so, pretty much the case um let's get back to market share real quick um 
market marketing materials when when you're trying to build market share what what does a salesperson need what helps well i i again i we talked about this in the the segment on the buying process there's a a piece i like to call a wave the flag piece that has a lot of good things about the company no matter what size i I think you know companies and larger companies that are involved in the stock market develop these pieces for that particular application to sell in the market but i think custom companies that are new to the market i mean they they can come out with a brochure about the product but i don't see a lot of people reading technical brochures about a product they're probably not going to buy because it's new but i think if they are able to put together a piece that says uh here's here's how long we've been in business it's not that long but we've got some really good scientists associated with us uh we've put a lot of money into building the product we're very socially conscious we're into the environment we're into lgbtq issues whatever they want to say about their you know their their company uh we're fully committed to a to customer satisfaction uh all you have to do is call us and tell us you got a problem and we'll move mountains to get there and help you whatever you can say really great about your company that will be true and not just a, an empty promise but that will be true uh will go a long way to getting you in some doors nice um let's talk about how product presentations differ based on market share right okay. at the end what do you think of that uh, I think there is a significant difference. When a, a large market share company is is a, a representative from that organization is making a presentation, they arrive at that presentation well stocked with applications data, literature references, uh, referrals from customers, and they could probably even skip the demo stage because depending upon the size of the institution that they're talking to at, they might be able to take the customer to another lab or a colleague already has a piece of equipment and is more than willing to talk with their uh, talk among themselves to discuss the benefits of ownership of that product from the larger uh, larger vendor so they're not fighting an uphill battle where the smaller vendor the five percent market share vendor or ten percent or whatever is is really in a, uh, fighting that uphill battle particularly if the uh, customer is considering one of the larger market share vendors so at this point that salesperson has to make uh, promises about what the end results will be and stick by those promises no matter what happens. They have to uh, be willing to go with extended warranties because you need to overcome the fear that customers may have that the product is not going to act as the way it's supposed to. They may even need to make money back guarantees, uh, a a flat out promise that if you are not happy, you get the money back. Now, those things have some tricky issues in them, again, with their accounts. Money doesn't always go back into the grant money, particularly if that year's grant money has expired. There's there's things they may have to actually provide an honorarium or something like that. Uh, But they also provide personal services, and the old favorite is providing discounts. And then once they provide discounts, they're kind of locked into the lower price anyway. But because they entering the market, sometimes they price their product based on the fact that they think it's the best thing that's ever been made. So there's room for discounting. <laughs> Good to know. Um, 
Well, I think that's really helpful and a nice place to wrap up this whole idea about market share, why it's important, how to get it, and what to do differently if you're at the low end of that spectrum. So Mike Camerata, um, as you said, willing to talk to people about any of this, I, I think my inclination, if it's all right with you, is to put your uh, LinkedIn um page on you know a link to your linkedin profile sure. in the show notes for this podcast and then people can contact you that way certainly you know they can contact me um and i'll forward anything to you if, if that's what people want to do but i really appreciate i think both of these podcasts have been really helpful and i've really enjoyed talking to you i i enjoyed being a part of this it's first time i've done a podcast and it was painless <laughs> good <laughs> I like that. I try to, it's fun for me. I'll tell you what. So, yeah. Well, thanks again and have a great day. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We all know it takes a lot to make a customer change what they're doing. It's not enough to be a little better. Hopefully this episode helps you rethink your approach and where to put your effort. If you're a small company trying to get started, some of that is understanding customer problems better from the start and some is looking for changes in the way larger companies are doing business. Hey, if you are in the San Francisco Bay Area or you will be coming to the area to attend the Tricon Molecular Medicine event, you should know that I'll be giving a free one and a half day training seminar on content marketing on February 15 and 16 at the Union Square Hilton, all part of the Tricon event. I would love to see you there. This is a great way to build out your content plan for 2018. For more info, go to triconference, that's T-R-I conference.com and look for training seminars under the agenda link. That's it for this episode. If you like it, as always, tell two friends. If you love it, tell three. I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.